Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. A recent BBC documentary looks at Kentucky flood recovery through the eyes of local reporter Katie Myers, who not only covered the disaster, but was part of the cleanup effort. In this situation, it's like, of course you help people. Like, what else are you going to do? There's nothing else to do. Like, everybody is literally trying to dig themselves out of a hole. We also meet a family who survived the flood, who found solace through faith and through song. Singing has always been a joy. When I sing and I feel God's love and his mercy, I know that he's with me. And we meet Kentucky actress Caroline Clay. She stars in a new musical with Dukes of Hazard actor John Schneider. The story is that she is an Amish girl brought up in an Amish home, and she finds out that she was adopted. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. So this is the neighborhood of Upper Bottom, and the water came up really high here. There were swift water rescues and uh, people just kind of um, evacuating pretty quickly, I think. This is like a... This is Katie Myers, a reporter at WMMT Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Katie covered the floods that devastated parts of eastern Kentucky last summer. That's Apple Shop, my workplace over there on the right. The water went, I think, above those windows on the first floor. Apple Shop is in an old factory building. Katie's been one of our Folkways reporters here at Inside Appalachia. But what you're hearing is not reporting for WMMT or Inside Appalachia. Instead, it's from a 38-minute BBC audio documentary called Kentucky Flooding. It was produced by reporter Philip Revel, who flew in from the UK to report on the flood's aftermath. Revel worked closely with Katie. Since she was a local reporter with knowledge of the area, she was able to help guide him and introduce him to people and a powerful effect. Here's some more from the documentary. You know, I'm wondering if you could, if there's anything you all would want to say about like your lives before this flood and sort of the lives you're hoping to get back to. My life before this flood was, um, I enjoyed uh, <clears throat> going fishing. I lost my bass boat. It's in the log jam. So I can't fish no more. I mean, I can go bank fishing. I, I still love bank fishing, but I love bass fishing on the boat. Can't do that no more. And uh, it, it's difficult. Uh, before, like right now, uh, where we're working on the house, it's nasty, and uh, we have a granddaughter that's three years old. Uh, we babysat her before this. So now we're not able to babysit her and not see her as much. So it's, that's very hard. And we're taking all of our time to work on the house. Uh, it's a slow process. Uh, I mean, it's, it's real difficult because I've raised my kids there for 24 years. And uh, before the flood, it was a home. Now it's just a house. It's very difficult seeing in 30 minutes time you lose everything. You know, we didn't lose no lives. People did lose lives in this flood, and we were very fortunate that we didn't. But we lost everything else. I recently spoke with Katie Myers and Philip Revel. I asked them about the process of making a documentary in this way, with one reporter from the area and another from an overseas outlet. Philip, when the Kentucky assignment came up, was it a story that came from you, or was it one that was handed down to you? Uh, it came from me. I'd been reading about the um, the floods. I, I'd never been to Weisberg, but I'd, I'd spoken to and recorded with people who lived there. At that point, I pitched the idea to, um, to the World Service editor. And then uh, I reached out to Katie to help us do it, and that's how it came about. And Katie, when the BBC reached out, as I understand it, it wasn't just Whitesburg generally or people in Kentucky. It was your employer that was affected by the damage, among many others. I understand that WMMT was among those. Can you talk about what happened with the flooding and your, your employer? The Kentucky River had never gotten that high, and it had not gotten high enough to 
do something near that since 57. So I think there was no sense of, um, there was no expectation that this could happen. Even in a heavy rain, we figured it would just kind of maybe lap at the bottom of the building and we'd have to deal with some water damage in that way. That day, it just went, I forget exactly how many feet, but it was something like six feet into like the first floor. And so everything like the theater, the the radio station and all of our equipment and, you know, all of this like beautiful art we had um, hanging downstairs in the gallery and all this stuff just kind of got sloshed around and destroyed in our archive, of course, uh, which is just decades of precious um, original recordings and film and photographs and just like documentation of life in Eastern Kentucky was all damaged, not all destroyed, but very severely damaged. That's how I came across the story that really uh, resonated with me. Uh, a photo was tweeted out looking down on Apple Shop and um, uh, showing how high the water had risen. It was like a building within the, in, a, in, a, in the middle of a, of a lake of water. That's kind of got tweaked the interest in the first place. And then as, as time went on, we were able to connect with Katie to help us understand uh, how the floods had, had affected um, uh, you know, this cultural center that had been there for over 50 years. So you'd you'd seen the photos, you'd corresponded with Katie and other folks. What did you see when you landed on the ground in Whitesburg? So we were, I arrived a few weeks after the floods. We didn't turn out, you know, the, within days of it. I spoke to people within days of it. So when I when I got there, three or four weeks after the flood itself, um, the clear up was still going on, uh, and Katie showed me around different areas of, um, you know, in the town and around in the hollows there, which were devastated. And it was pretty shocking to see, you know, to, to see houses that had been washed away, you know, into the road or away from the road. So that was pretty shocking to see, very shocking actually to see that. And then to see people, you know, living in tents beside the, um, beside the road where their home had been washed away or to meet people who were still clearing out a home that had been ruined, pulling up the floor or pulling down the walls. That was really pretty shocking, frankly, to see that and uh, you know, and, and upsetting to see how people's lives have been totally turned upside down. What strikes me when I listen to this documentary is you just get this strength of emotion that comes through and it's immediately apparent that Katie has been living through it and not just that, but actively participating in the recovery efforts, not just as a reporter, but as a human being. Katie, can you give us a little um, behind the scenes on kind of what life was like in those weeks between the flooding leading up to some of this reporting with Philip? You know, I want to first off say that, you know, I wasn't directly affected by this flood and I got, you know, pretty lucky. I didn't lose anything. I didn't lose anyone. And so, you know, to be blunt this is my first journalism job and I still am navigating the ways that changes your relationship to people like the sort of fragmenting of identities that you can kind of have as a journalist like it all kind of collapsed in on itself and I was just one person in this situation it's like of course you help people like what else are you gonna do there's nothing else to do like everybody is literally trying to dig themselves out of a hole and like what kind of a person are you if you don't at least try to help them out, even if you don't have much in the way of like hard skills, especially, you know, a lot of us who are like artists or documentarians or journalists in the area, we found that that was like what we really needed to do. We just needed to like help people out. And that, that was what everyone was doing. And it seemed very natural to, to do. Let's hear another excerpt from the documentary. My name is Brandon Fleming. I was born and raised right here in the county. And today we are preparing for lunch. We, these are 40 gallon kettles. So we have 40 gallons of pinto beans ready to eat today. And in the other 40 gallon kettle, we have potatoes cooked with meat. And then of course, beside of it there, we have uh, turnip greens. We do this every day, seven days a week, three meals a day. The people that are coming here now are, are flood victims, and you see a great big change in, in their attitude when they come in. When they first come in, they were downtrodden, 
and wanting to tell a story and now they've gotten to know each other as they share their meals and they seem a little bit more peaceful and at ease because you know they realize that they're not in this by themselves but we're all in this together yes i said when i drive up the road now and i see those big piles of stuff for those trucks to pick up the uh garbage as most people would say that's that's not really garbage though that's people's lives that's that's everything they worked all these years for it's their memories that's their lifehood that's everything right there in a pile in a heap for to be hauled away after you get those houses mucked out and everything and after the hard work is done then they come down here because a lot of these people don't have access to to be able to cook a meal at this time so they come here then and share a hot meal after after a long day's work what kind of response did you all see once this documentary aired well my my feedback tends to be from colleagues rather than directly from people you know on the ground so that everybody here was very pleased and thought it was good to love to hear katie's story and her narration of it um that went down really well it was very well received i think like i said there's just you know always this constant worry that eastern kentucky will be forgotten and just the fact that people from so far away were so interested in the place's story i think that really meant a lot to folks one thing your your three minute 30 second radio feature also can't do is like just really let people talk and i think this piece allowed people to just just talk the sense I got from folks who listened to it is that like that felt more authentic to how people wanted to like express and understand what had happened to them because all you had to do is ask one question people would just start going off because like nobody was going to see their therapist you know what I mean like a lot of folks don't have like an outlet to to just really like talk through like these traumas that had just happened to them and so here we are on the last day of January several months on since the flooding and since the documentary what do things look like in Kentucky now Katie, I know the recovery continues. Yeah, it does. You really can't understand how long this stuff takes until you're in the middle of it. You get a couple months of, you know, apply, apply, apply. You know, you got to apply for FEMA. You got to apply for this, you know, debris pickup, all this other stuff. You know, like there are these windows that are open for help. And then after a certain amount of time, they become like somewhat less accessible. Like the initial FEMA application deadline where you can still appeal if you got denied, but if you haven't applied, you can't apply anymore. And, you know, at that point, these sort of like volunteer groups and all, you know, this other kind of energy around it just sort of slows down a lot and people are just kind of left with what they have. You know, there's sort of like a general sense of malaise, I think, settling in because you just realize six months on that this is just kind of what it's like right now um, and it's not going to just bounce back. You know, there's a whole neighborhood in Whitesburg. I used to go on my little trail run past this neighborhood called Upper Bottom, where I think we walk around in the documentary. And Upper Bottom was a cute neighborhood. There were kids, there were cats, there were dogs. And um, it's just empty, you know, like you just walk past it and like everything's just like kind of dark. And like, I don't think it's going to go back to the way it was. So that's very sad here, isn't it? I was wondering what happened to the people in the camper van. Uh, do you know what, you know, they still in their camper van? Did they, did they manage to get into that back into their house? You know, and the, 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 the house, which was, had been gutted when we were there. I just sometimes wonder whether those folk got their, got their shelter sorted before the weather became colder. Some people did. I know, um, some of the folks we talked to in, um, Millstone, like yeah. they started to rebuild and put sheetrock down and then like everybody started having various health problems that family has gone through a lot over the past little bit so i think there's the complications too of like people are rebuilding but sort of like the stress and the trauma and like wear and tear on your body just from like having to figure all this stuff out is sort of beginning to set in um but also you know and i I don't want to paint like too bleak of a picture because i do think you know a lot of these community centers are back running like there's community events happening um you know a bunch of churches put it on christmas dinner over christmas the shops in Whitesburg or, you know, a lot of them have opened back up. There's life, you know, life is going on and continuing, but it's definitely, you know, I think still, still pretty hard for a lot of folks. Well, Katie Myers, Philip Revel, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us about this documentary. Thank you for, um, for inviting. It was uh, something I was really pleased to do because I 
had it in my head that I'd like to follow up in somewhere. So just uh, touching base with Katie now and hearing what she's just said was in itself really interesting and informative to me as well. Yeah, and thank you so much, Mason. And Philip, it's so nice to, to talk to you again. Yeah, you too. That was BBC reporter Philip Revel and WMMT journalist Katie Myers. They collaborated to make Kentucky Flooding, an episode of the BBC documentary series. We'll post up a link on our website, wvpublic.org. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave also lives in the area affected by last year's flooding. She and Katie Myers were both part of a volunteer group helping people muck out and gut homes during flood cleanup. One of those homes belongs to James and Ruby Boggs. They lived in an old coal camp called Millstone on the North Fork of the Kentucky River. A month after she was there as a volunteer, Nicole returned to catch up with the Boggs family. And she heard about the joy that comes from the soothing music of an old family guitar. On the day of the flood, James and Ruby Boggs had about four and a half feet of water rushing through their two-story house. I was here a few weeks after the flood with the volunteer group. We helped tear out drywall and flooring with the Boggs' daughter, Darina Dunbar. I'm back now a month later, and Darina takes me inside to show me their progress. Well, it looks a lot different since I was last year. Yeah, we got, uh, you know, they, we had this donated to us and this donated to us. Just got it yesterday. Some insulation and some drywall? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Darina's in her 50s and grew up in this house. Music was always a part of daily life for the family. And it remains important today. When we have Thanksgiving, we have Christmas, anything, we all start singing. It's all music. i got a brother who plays the harmonica. I sing. My other brother sings, plays guitar. Now I have a granddaughter who's picking up the guitar and playing, and she can yodel like my dad. <laughs> she can. Darina's parents were part of a well-known gospel group in the area called the Happy Notes. The Happy Notes played on the local radio station and at funerals and revivals. They even recorded an eight-track that Darina sang on. Darina's parents, James and Ruby, are in their 70s now, and they don't perform as much as they used to. Lately, Ruby's voice has started giving out. I've actually worn my voice out where we've sang so much for so many years, you know, and, um, and I'm not ashamed to say that I'm, I'm very loud. <laughs> but James and Ruby still sing and play at their church and with family. So in their house filled with floodwaters, one of the things they were most worried about was James's guitar. Forty-seven years we lived here, we lost everything down there. And my guitar was in here. The guitar was downstairs, in a case, propped up in a corner of the living room. I figured it was destroyed. When the water receded, James spotted the guitar case and all the mess. It fell apart as soon as he opened it. He pulled the guitar out and looked it over. There was a little mud on the neck, and the strings needed to be replaced. But it wasn't warped or cracked. So James decided to give it a test. I said, oh, Lord, how mercy will be out today. If it, if it rang, it'll be all right. So I got it now. the guitar rang. Darina says it still needed some work. My younger brother, Duran, took it to his house and he cleaned it and shined it and put all brand new strings on it. And the case that he had that fell apart, you know, we just got rid of it and my brother got him a case and put the guitar in it. A couple of weeks later, the whole family gathered outside the family home to celebrate James's 79th birthday. And they presented James with a spruced up guitar. Surprised and delighted, James tuned it up and led four generations in a rendition of I'll Fly Away. Someone in the family recorded the moment and shared it to Facebook. It's all singing tenor and low tenor and all this stuff, so we, all of us was singing the song, and we, we just enjoyed it, didn't we? It was just a really awesome time. Darina says some people were surprised that her family was able to express so much joy amidst the hardship. 
people started uh, responding to it and saying that we were singing joyful songs and the flood was behind us. We had all the debris outside and everybody was saying it's a time that you all have joy when, you know, most people don't got that joy. But I know that it all come from, from God. In the aftermath of the flood, singing together has been a source of comfort for the Boggs family. And as Ruby explains, it's also a way to reaffirm their faith after tragedy. Singing has always been a joy. When I sing and I feel God's love and his mercy, I know that he's with me. For the God on the mountain, he's still God in the valley. When things go wrong, he'll make them right. Seven months after the flood, James and Ruby are still waiting to move back into their home. The family's been navigating some illnesses, so rebuilding has taken longer than they'd hoped. But they've hung sheetrock on the walls, and a local nonprofit helped get them a new heat pump at no cost. A friend of theirs is a carpenter, and he's been helping on weekends. They hope to move back in in two to three months, before the one-year anniversary of the flood. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Millstone, Kentucky. When life's sad, it's big. Yes, yes. But it's down in the valley. Of trials and sorrows. Yes, that story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see photos, hear that story again, or listen to any of our other Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Later in the show, we talk with Kentucky actress Caroline Clay about her journey to the stage. I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for the arts programs and music programs and children's theaters in the eastern part of Kentucky. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Early February, a train derailed near East Palestine, Ohio, releasing toxic chemicals into the air and waterways. Now, some people are asking, could stronger train regulations have prevented this disaster? The Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports. It's around 10 o'clock at night in East Palestine. A Norfolk Southern train runs through the center of town, stopping traffic. The trains are back up and running, almost two weeks since the derailment upended life here. Keith Gregory waits for the train to pass in his SUV. You're not going to beat a multi-billion dollar company, you know. A few years ago, federal regulators tried to tighten rules around hazardous train cargo, like crude oil. But ultimately, they allowed exemptions in the rules. Gregory now says he wishes those rules had been tighter. Oh, yeah, yeah. The thing is, they wreck every other friggin' day. Yeah. Every friggin' day. Trains in the U.S. actually derail about three times a day, according to the Federal Railroad Administration, though seldom do these involve hazardous materials. The Norfolk Southern wreck in East Palestine released thousands of gallons of toxic chemicals into the environment. Rather than risk an explosion from an overheating tank of the chemical vinyl chloride, the company released and burned it, sending up a cloud of toxic smoke. In a press conference following the derailment, 
Ohio Governor Mike DeWine expressed difficulty grasping one particular aspect of federal rail regulations. This train was not was not considered high hazardous material train. The legal term is high hazard flammable train. In 2015, federal regulators mandated tighter regulations for trains carrying crude oil, but chemicals like vinyl chloride were not included, against the recommendations of the National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, frankly, uh, if this is true, and I'm told it's true, uh, this is absurd, uh, and we need to look at this, uh, and Congress needs to take a, take a look. The NTSP also recommended these trains have electronic braking systems, which studies have shown are better than the kinds of air brakes that were on the Norfolk Southern train. Why? Traditional brakes work by pushing a pulse of compressed air along a train. That pulse moves quickly, but there can be a slight delay between when cars in the front begin braking and when those in the rear do. That means the cars in the back push on those in the front, which are trying to stop, says Steve Dittmeyer, a former official with the Federal Railroad Administration. By contrast, electronic brakes send the brake signal at the speed of light, Dittmeyer says. All the brakes go on simultaneously, which shortens the braking distance and reduces the pressure on the train from the rear to the front. The Obama administration originally mandated that these high-hazard trains have electronic brakes. But after lobbying by the rail industry, the Trump administration rescinded those rules. Investigators are pointing to a possible axle failure as the cause of the East Palestine derailment. The train was also big, 150 cars, over a mile and a half long. Dittmeyer says train size can also contribute to safety issues. The railroads are running longer trains. Uh, than than before. And uh, longer trains, when they, when there's a failure of a component, have bigger accidents. Larger trains are a trend going back a few years with a concept called precision scheduled railroading. Under this trend, big rail companies, including Norfolk Southern, cut costs by reducing staff around 30 percent. They also cut rail routes and began increasing the length of their trains. Oh my God. Wall Street loved it. Wall Street rewarded rail, his railroads for doing this by raising the value of the stock. Rail worker unions have criticized these companies' focus on cost-cutting. Michael Paul Lindsay is a locomotive engineer who's worked in the industry for 17 years, mostly in the West. Lindsay says companies emphasize the need to get rail cars out of rail yards and on to their next destination. The entire railroad kind of fights each other where, um, you know, terminal managers in one terminal will send a train down the line that has mechanical problems, but just get it out of the terminal. Let them deal with it. It's, it's like kick the, a big game and kick the can down the road a lot of times. Norfolk Southern officials bowed out of a public meeting on the derailment. Calls to the company on the topic were not returned. Alan Zaremski is director of the Railroad Engineering and Safety Program at the University of Delaware. He says that the rush to judge Norfolk Southern is understandable, but may be misplaced. You have to realize we're dealing with very rare events. Zaremski says one advantage of long trains is there are fewer train trips, increasing safety. He agrees that electronic brakes would make hazardous material trains safer. But, he said, mandating them would create a whole new set of logistical problems for putting together cargo trains, and it would cost into the billions. Zaremski worries more regulation could push freight customers to use more dangerous modes of transportation, like trucks. There are only about 14 hazardous material derailments a year in the U.S., according to federal data. It's a classic question. Do you spend $100 million to save a million dollars? Um, if, if, it's, if it's spending a million dollars to save a million dollars, that's usually a no-brainer. Everybody knows that answer. Yes, you do that. Do you spend a hundred million dollars to save a million dollars? That's where it gets a lot more complex. Meanwhile, the accident has renewed interest in the safety practices of big railroads. All four U.S. senators from Ohio and Pennsylvania say they'll push for new rules to prevent a similar disaster in the future. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Reed Frazier. I turned 46 earlier this year, and I'm spending more time lately taking care of my mom as she gets older. Some of that is keeping track of everything. Not just their doctor's appointments and errands, but important documents. WVPB's Eric Douglas has been exploring these kinds of challenges. 
He recently spoke with Charleston, West Virginia lawyer Frankie Parsons about getting documents set up in case of accident, illness, or death. A lot of parent, a lot of people my age are finding themselves in a position to be caring for their parents. And some of those conversations are kind of difficult from wills to estate planning. So uh, where do you want to start? Tell me, tell me what the biggest issue is. To your point about uh, on the topic of aging parents, I had this conversation not just once a day, multiple times a day. I am, I'm 45 years old. Most of my friends about the same age group and we are in the sandwich generation. I do not have children, but a lot of people are caring for children and also parents who sure. are declining while having careers. So it is, it is a lot to juggle. Um, and it's, this is a very timely topic that I feel will hit home with a lot of people. Prior to parents declining physically, mentally, I assume you would say get, a, get all these papers in order, have, have those difficult conversations. So how do you get started? What, what, what does somebody need to know? We all, all of us, regardless of age, need both two things. This is how I explain it to most clients. You need a life plan, your life planning documents, and your estate planning documents. Life planning documents are powers of attorney and revocable living trusts. Because if you are incapacitated in any way, if, if you or I left here today and got into a car wreck and we're in a coma, Financial powers of attorney are very important because you need to have someone who can manage your financial affairs, access your accounts, manage your business affairs generally if you're not able to. When we go to the hospital, we're we're checking in for surgery. They'll give us a form that's a medical power of attorney, but that's not what you're talking about. Right. Equally important, though. Medical powers of attorney, also part of that life planning document uh, Uh, set that I talk about. uh, Yes, medical powers of attorney say, if I cannot speak for myself, here is who may make decisions about my medical care. Also, in the, a, a lot of those documents, the ones we use at our law firm, contain a living power of attorney, or living will, I should say, is part of the medical power of attorney, and also directions for uh, the disposition of your remains. You'd be surprised how many conflicts arise mm. about what we do with the remains of an individual once they've passed on. Wow. And which is really not the time you want to be having that conversation. No. Uh, in older documents, you'll often see that type of language put into a will. Well, the problem is when we need to make the decision about what we're going to do with a body, we might not know where the will is. We have not had an executor appointed. We don't have access to that document quite often. If you haven't pre-planned, if you haven't prepaid for a funeral, there needs to be some written document, whether it's in the will, but you're saying not actually you put it in the will, but it's not where you want it. You need a, a separate document in the in the life plan. I would say it should not go in a will. I mean, it certainly okay. wouldn't invalidate a will if it was in there, but that's not the place you want to have it. You definitely want it in a document that whoever is making decisions for you while you're still alive and incapacitated would have access to it so they know what to do. Even if you have prepaid for a funeral, whoever is dealing with your body might not know that. Mm. I mean, in your situation, you clearly know what your mother's plans are. If you have someone, uh, in my situation, I don't have a spouse or children who would be around and maybe know that. Right. Um, So you would want to make sure you had that outlined in a document that whoever is around making those decisions would Mm. know you prepaid for a funeral. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you're talking... You've, you've died in whatever the circumstance, and the hospital is saying, okay, where do you want us to send the body? Correct. And I don't know. Um, yeah, that's... And I have clients that, uh, it, it seems to go one of two ways. I have clients that just put a general provision in that document that says, my agent, who's who you named to be your medical power of attorney, can decide what to do with my remains. I have other clients that want me to very specifically outline they are to be cremated and where the ashes are to be spread mm. and what type of service can be held and who may have ashes. It's it's a personal preference, but there is a legalized and <laughs> outlined way to do that now. That was attorney Frankie Parsons speaking with Eric Douglas for the series Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. 
Find the rest of the series on our website at wvpublic.org. If I had the wings of Noah's dove, I'd still not know the reach of the Father's love. Across the water sky land, I find traveling mercy wherever I am traveling. A new memoir traces a life inspired by the environmental hero Rachel Carson, who wrote the landmark book Silent Spring. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsoppel has more. Patty DeMarco has had a 50-year career in energy and environmental policy. She was the executive director of the Rachel Carson Homestead Association and director of the Rachel Carson Institute at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, where she's now senior scholar and adjunct faculty. In her new book, In the Footsteps of Rachel Carson, Harnessing Earth's Healing Power, DeMarco opens up about her career and personal life including moving to Brazil at 10 when her father was in the Foreign Service, and how her time there mirrored the way Rachel Carson grew up in western Pennsylvania. Her family was very protective of her. So was mine. I mean, they controlled who we played with because we lived out in the middle of the jungle. Everybody else lived in town. And also, there are not many 12-year-old kids in a Catholic school that are interested in bugs. I know one time this absolutely beautiful moth was kind of injured in the playground at lunchtime, and I wanted to save it. I picked it up, and I put it over in the bushes, and of course it fluttered right back down because it had a damaged wing. And one of the boys came running by and stomped it flat, and I just sat down and cried. Kids did not connect to things that I got excited about. So I felt a little bit like Rachel Carson that I found solace in connecting to the natural world because it didn't criticize. There's some really lovely nature writing in the book. I'm thinking of your time at the shore with your children, examining those little crabs and insects there, and your descriptions of the ecosystem of your yard in Pittsburgh, where you would lie on the ground as you healed from cancer. Could you read a little section? Well, sure. Thank you for asking. I had a section called The Gifts of the Healing Trees. I'll just read a little paragraph. I closed my eyes and felt the embrace of the elder pin oaks extend to me. These great trees form the connection between the earth and the sky. Each one an engine of carbon sequestration as their leaves turn sunlight into sugars and starches and cellulose. The miracle of photosynthesis happens here on a grand scale. In this summer of rain and warm weather, the air so close to the ground holds an earthy fragrance laced with clover blossoms and the stargazer lilies in the nearby garden border. My senses are dulled by the chemicals coursing through my body in the attempt to stifle the tumor growing in my breast, but saturating myself in all of this pulsing life lends me a sense of calm and confidence in the enduring resilience of nature. Who did you write this book for, and what do you want them to take away from it? I wrote this book partly because I was so inspired by Rachel Carson's fortitude in dealing with a really brutal treatment for cancer. In her days, it was much worse than it is today. She persisted, even when she was suffering, you know, iritis in her eyes and had to have people read to her. And I felt like, okay, what you need to do is to focus on your purpose. I continued writing a blog every month during the whole time I was sick. I gave 35 speeches the year that I was in chemo. And I find that when you're dealing with something as invasive and disruptive as cancer and the treatments of it, if you have an internal sense of purpose, you're less likely to be destroyed and devastated by the experience of having a disease. And I wanted to share that. Patty DeMarco is the author of the new book, In the Footsteps of Rachel Carson, Harnessing Earth's Healing Power. I'm Carol Holsapel. Eastern Kentucky native Caroline Clay has been acting for several years now, but she may have just got her first big break. She plays an adopted Amish girl in search of her real parents in the faith-based musical The Confession. Based on the book series by Beverly Lewis, the musical is a video production of a stage play. It stars John Schneider, best known as Bo Duke from the Dukes of Hazzard television show. Randy Yowie spoke with Clay about the movie and her life before acting. Caroline, a good share of your growing up years, you lived in a state park. How did that play into your youthful development? 
That's right. I feel really fortunate to be one of the only people I know who got to grow up uh, in a place that was so, I don't want to say isolated, but so unique as a surrounding environment compared to the kids I even went to school with at the time uh, who had neighbors and who had communities and who had, you know, restaurants and gas stations nearby. I had nothing like that. However, I had a lot of... uh, nature and walking paths and a nice big lake to go visit and Greenbow Lake was a really wonderful place to grow up. I feel like I uh, got to spend a lot of time developing my individualism, you know, taking walks and being outside and I I think it's really good for a a kid to get to do things like that. So how does a a passion for the arts and theater begin when you're living there in in a state park? I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for the arts programs and music programs and children's theaters in the eastern part of Kentucky in the early 2000s. I got hooked up pretty early on with uh, some local plays that were going on. ACTC Theater used to do a Christmas carol every year. Um, and I went and tried out. My, my dad took me to my first audition which was with a theater that doesn't exist anymore in Olive Hill. It was called Someday Outdoor Drama. And my sister and I both, I have a little sister who is also an actor, and we just fell in love with it. It's really good for kids, I think, and it definitely was for us, to be involved in the arts because it brings you out of your shell. It gives you a sense of responsibility and gives you a community of like-minded people where you feel that you can express yourself openly and... Uh, and be yourself. Well, you come from a family of, of music and entertainment and arts. Tell us about that. That's right. Yeah, I, I get the best of both worlds with my parents because my dad is a singer, and he used to sing on Opryland in Nashville. In fact, that's where I was born. Uh, and he's always been an entertainer. If anyone who knows him could tell you, he's got a big personality. So he's kind of a showman. And then my mom is... Uh, she's an English teacher and a writer, and she definitely helped my sister and I develop our literary side and encouraged us to read. And I think that also really helped, especially as an actor, reading books and understanding characters helps you play a character better when you're growing up, helps you empathize more with other people and other experiences. So between showmanship dad and... uh English teacher mom, I think we, we truly got the best of both sides of the arts there. So, and then you went off to not too far away, Moorhead State University, still right there in eastern Kentucky in Appalachia, where you got your, your bachelor's in theater and communications. A, a, a big growing process there as well, I bet. That's right. Moorhead was a fabulous experience. I would recommend it to anyone looking for a college. Um, you know, we know that eastern Kentucky and Appalachia is a a nurturing ground for music and entertainment. Did that play in for you a bit somehow? Definitely. You know, I think the Appalachian region has a lot of talent. And not only that, but a lot to inspire. You know, we have beautiful landscapes for people who are, let's say, painters and need inspiration. Uh, we have a lot of wildlife we have a lot we well we have bluegrass music you know kentucky's the bluegrass state we've got bluegrass music i mean how many states can say they have their own type of music so uh definitely people supported me and my little sister Haley. we got a lot of support and a lot of encouragement to uh grow and to be ourselves and and to 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 do what we wanted with our free time, our hobbies, and that really helped develop us into who we are today and doing the arts as a career. So once you left Moorhead State, um, what kind of uh, theater path did you follow? It must have taken you out of Appalachia sooner or later. Yeah, it did. Moorhead had a great theater program with a lot of really great teacher, fabulous teachers who uh, inspired me to pursue this after school, and Greg Carlisle was a wonderful mentor to me. He's still there running the theater program, Uh, as well as Sean Parker, who was my acting professor. He's not there anymore. But the two of them really helped me 
to not only hone my skills as an actor and performer, but also they taught me the business side of things uh, and what the reality would be like going into the arts as a profession. And they helped me to find auditions, to find theater conferences, and to make those connections in the real-world arts industries so that I could secure employment in the arts after college. And it's been a really fun ride. I uh, One of the things I wasn't expecting but I have come to learn is when you have a job in the arts, you there's no I don't want to say there's no security but that is kind of the case it's a it's a gig job you're always looking for the next gig you know even the most famous actors you can think of you know I don't know like Robert Downey Jr. even Robert Downey Jr. when he's done filming Iron Man he's got to find something else to act in you know everything you do has an end date or you know let's say you're a, a painter you make this painting and it's done and it goes in the museum beautiful no, what's the next thing? You're always moving on to the next thing. You're always looking for new work. And that's why uh, it's kind of hard to stay in one place, especially in Appalachia. Uh, almost no one has just one job. You know, you have several jobs <laughs> and you're moving on to the next gig, auditioning for new stuff. I often say acting. The job isn't acting. The job is auditioning. You're starring in a family faith picture called The Confession. It debuts uh, nationally here in February. Uh, tell us about that. Who do you play with? What's it about? The Confession is a live musical movie. It was filmed live on stage in real Amish country, Shipshawana, Indiana. And it is a story about an Amish girl, me, uh, I, uh, the character I play, her name is Katie Lapp. Uh, the story is that she is an Amish girl brought up in an Amish home. And she finds out that she was adopted, that her mother and father that she's always known, her, her Amish mother and father, are not her biological parents. And so she makes a choice to leave the Amish community and go out into the real world, or as the Amishers would say, the English world, in search of her birth mother. And I play the lead. I play the main girl, Katie Lapp. And you start with John Schneider, right? I do. I start with John Schneider, who is best known as Bo Duke from the Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> if you remember that one. And uh, most people my age know him from Smallville, I think. That's the thing I hear most from my friends. Uh, John Schneider, and then Shonda Pierce, the, uh, the comedian, who was, she was a real friend and a real hoot to work with. Any advice for a young, uh, young man, young woman from Appalachia that, that's interested in the arts? Uh, on on how to to find your path. Definitely. Uh, My number one advice on that is to read more books. Because, as I said, my mom was an English teacher. I really think that reading and committing to reading at a young age helped me develop a, a better vocabulary, helped me, as I said before, to to learn to have more empathy, to see other points of view, I think reading has really, for, for all arts people, can only help develop your skills more. Number two, uh, arts are important and valid in any sense. You don't have to go into it as a career to be considered an artist. You don't have to be a famous singer. You don't have to become Billy Ray Cyrus, even though, you know, we love him, to still be considered a musician. It's valid even if you do it in your part-time, if you play your guitar at your house, you know, you're a musician, you're an artist, even if it's your hobby. And finally, if you're a young person, especially a kid who likes doing theater, likes doing the arts, um, don't listen to people when they tell you it's not a viable career path, because I am living proof that it is. And I won't say I didn't have a lot of support for my career choices, because I did, and I'm very lucky for that. Uh, But for every person saying, yes, be an artist, be an actor, that's awesome. There was a person on the other side saying, well, you won't make any money with that. That's not a real job. Eventually, you're going to have to find uh, a real uh, a real major in college or something like that. And I'm so glad that I didn't listen to them because it's more important, I think, to love what you do than to, to choose the safe path just because you're afraid or you've listened to the naysayers who uh, I'm sure have the best intentions, but... 
you know, you really have to follow your passion. I think it's super important, and I am living proof that it pays off. Well, it sounds like you're doing just that. We'll look forward to seeing the confession, and uh, best of luck to you and your career. It's uh, great to talk to you. I've been good buddies with your dad for a quarter century, so thanks so much, <laughs> and, and best of luck, Caroline. Thank you so much, Randy. Thanks for having me. To find out more about the confession, visit wvpublic.org. Just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Beats all you never saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Straightening the curves, flattening the hills. Someday the mountain might get them, but the law never will. Making their way the only way they know how. That's just a little bit more than the law will allow. Inside Appalachia is at its best when it connects with people and gets them thinking. Sometimes when that happens, we get a question or two. A listener in Pennsylvania wrote to say that Zach Carroll's recent story about his family's Monday night soup bean tradition reminded him of when he lived in New Orleans. He says on Mondays, just about everybody eats red beans. They have for generations. He writes, As I understand the lore in the days before kitchens were in the house proper, and family wash was done in a boiling kettle in the courtyard, women put on a pot of red beans first thing in the morning and let it cook all day so that they could do the family wash without having to take time out to make the family supper. He wondered if there was a similar reason tied to making beans in West Virginia. So we asked Zach, why did his family choose Monday night for beans? Zach says the story about New Orleans is interesting, but his family's tradition only started when his mom and dad got married because that was just the night they ended up having dinner with the in-laws. He added that wash day seemed like more of a Saturday thing in his neck of the woods. That way, everybody would have clean clothes for church the next day. Food traditions are part of what we explore here on Inside Appalachia. We'd love to hear about yours. Write to us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Ona, The Sycamores, and Waylon Jennings. Bill Inch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash Inside Appalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply.